Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And since we're talking about first impressions today, I figured we could get things kicked off with Facebook. Because Facebook is now the ultimate tool that we have to mold our first impression of ourselves to the public. Right. This is your chance to pick, to steal an ad from some magazine and scan it in and have it be your profile picture, the way that the world sees you. Mm-hmm. You can go in, you can Photoshop away any any blemish that you don't like, use your best angle, your right. best outfit, maybe do a hipstamatic wash Just over steal, it. Just steal Mark Twain quotes as your statuses and not tell anyone, mm-hmm. because assuming your friends haven't read any Mark Twain. You can be the perfect person or the perfect person in your mind. I mean, obviously, first impressions are entirely subjective. Right. But I do think it's uh, it's we live in an interesting time where Facebook allows us to mold that public persona. So why don't we personalize things a little bit, Caroline, and talk about our Stuff Mom Never Told You Facebook page, because we recently had to update our format to the Facebook timeline, so we had to pick the the large image that goes behind our normal profile picture. Right. So Kristen and I went out to the beach and had the photographer take pictures of us dancing in the waves. Yes, although there are like six of us somehow. Yeah. Well, you know. Magic. 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 <laughs> One of our brilliant camera wizards, uh, that's a real staff position here at mm-hmm. How Stuff Works. One of our camera wizards created um, a number of images for us to choose from, something to capture the essence of stuff mom never told you, to create that great first impression of right. who we are. And it was very hard to choose from. She She made all these awesome images and um, it was tough to choose and we decided to go with the neurotic swimmers dancing in the surf <laughs> in old timey bathing suits. We, wa- we wanted to give you, the listener, the right first impression of us, which is that we are ridiculous. We are footloose, we are fancy free, frequently dancing in w- water, modest in our swimwear. Yeah, but with good hairstyles the whole way through. Yeah. I gotta say though, um, I wonder, I wonder what our, the first impression of the actual picture of you and me offers <laughs> because we are sitting back to back in a very, <laughs> a very Olin Mills girl kind of. My roommate told me that it gives off the worst first impression and yeah. that it is not the best picture of me and that we need to get into the studio pronto to get more pictures taken. You know, I was told that as well, but I do have to admit that when I first saw that that back to back sort of cheesy cheesy it's not sort of it's cheesy very we can be honest yeah that cheesy photograph there was something about it that I liked but I agree that perhaps it does not <laughs> does not give the best first impression which is why I'm glad that we, it's now nestled into a much larger background right of dancing bathing ladies well but so is Facebook a tool to portray your real self then or a better self. Well, here's the thing for everyone out there who and I'm guilty of this as well, who has intentionally crafted profile pictures and profile information to uh, create, you know, sort of an idealized self. You're failing. 
Really? Yeah. Um, the thing is, according to a 2009 study by Sam Gosling at the University of Texas at Austin, the impressions that people make based on your Facebook profiles are actually closer to the reality of who you are than that idealized self that you might want to project. Hmm. Yeah, so people were able to pick up on the actual aspects of your personality. Like if you're one of those people, sorry, no offense, but if you're one of those people who posts sad status updates all the time, mm-hmm. like, it's 1am, I have no one to talk to. It's like, no, I'm going to hide you, hide, hide, I don't want to read that. And so I think those statuses are an accurate reflection of some of those people. Because speaking personally, well, because they're obviously not trying to gussy up their their image at all. It sounds like. Uh, but what Gosling did was he found I think it was two hundred and thirty six people on Facebook, um, and he had them fill out personality trait questionnaires to get a sense of who they actually were. And um, and then he had strangers come in and look at the profiles and give their impression of these um, strangers based on their profiles. And come to find out, the impressions that, that the strangers had were fairly accurate compared to the, the actual personality traits. And especially for traits like extroversion, it, it easily comes across through Facebook. The one trait, however, that was the hardest to detect based on Facebook profiles is neuroticism. <laughs> so, <laughs> Not on mine. Not on mine. <laughs> but m- perhaps that's because, uh, you know, you... Well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to make any value judgments on your perceived neuroticism. Well, one of my most recent status updates was about how I was on my way to urgent care because I got bitten by a spider. So that just sounds like you're living on the edge. Living on the edge. Sounds like you're adventurous. I well, or I got bit while I was sleeping. So whatever. <laughs> so moving on from Facebook to the real world, where spiders bite Caroline. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about how first impressions when you first see someone, when you first make that handshake. What happens in our brains? Like, how do we process it? How long does it take for our brains to take that snapshot and decide whether or not? we like or don't like what we see. It's immediate. You have milliseconds to decide um, what you think about someone. And you have milliseconds to give a very good impression. And especially if you're shaking someone's hand, that also comes into play. And we'll talk about that later. But uh, a 2006 study by Princeton psychologist Janine Willis and Alexander Todorov found that it took only a tenth of a second to form an impression of a stranger from his or her face. And the longer you were exposed to that person did not change the impression that you had of them. What it did was just reinforce the impression you already had. So once you meet someone and you think, this person is great and they're nice and they're outgoing, you're no longer seeking information to disprove that. You're seeking backup information to fall in line with the impression that you developed. And unfortunately, the same thing goes for a negative impression. Right. You don't seek out, well, a lot of times, some, you know, probably the better people among us might seek out those positive attributes. But a lot of times, if you get a, you know, offer a first um, impression that's negative, that is imprinted on the other person's brain in that tenth of a second. And those same Princeton psychologists suspect that it might take an even shorter amount of time because a tenth of a second was simply like the shortest time frame Mm -hmm. that they tested. Right. Well, so what is actually going on in the brain 
when a first impression is happening? Like what what's part of the process of deciding about what you think about a person? And this is coming from Dr. Rick Nauert uh, for Psych Central. He broke down a 2009 study from the journal Nature Neuroscience that explored the formation of a first impression. And uh, subjects were given profiles of fictional people that included both a photo and a list of the person's positive and negative traits, and they use neuroimaging to find out what was happening in the brain as the person processed the photo, what the person looked like, and their traits. They found activity in two regions of the brain during this encoding process, the the process of taking in impression-relevant info, things that confirmed what they already thought. And they found that things were just lighting up in the amygdala and the posterior cingulate Cortex. And when we talk about um, the what these structures are responsible for, the kind of emotional links that they have, it makes a lot of sense that these two areas lit up because the amygdala is related a lot to our emotional learning about inanimate objects. Um, it's also what lights up in, um, with large emotional responses. For instance, if we get angry at something, uh, the amygdala will go off. And then the posterior cingulate cortex is linked to economic decision-making and assigning subjective value to Reward. So this is weighing the pros and the cons of, hey, I don't, I don't know if I like how you look. I don't know if you're trustworthy. Um, is this going to be a beneficial acquaintance for me to forge? And all of this is happening so quickly in those milliseconds. And speaking of the amygdala, there was another piece of research that I found on uh, the gender differences between first impressions and how our brains form them. And men, uh, just on a side note, men tend to show greater amygdala activation in response to women's faces. So they might, you know, uh, we talk a lot about how men tend to be more visually stimulated, and that might be one one piece of evidence to that. Okay, so your brain is processing all of this so quickly. There's all this stuff going on in your, in your brain, weighing the pros and cons of this person you just encountered. But how accurate is it? And there was a 2009 study by psychologists Laura Noman and Sam Gosling, who you mentioned earlier from UT Austin, and they gave pictures of 123 people to observers, and the people in the pictures were either neutral, like, you know, just standing there stone-faced, or they were just naturally posed, however they would naturally stand. And so they compared the observer's judgments with the target's self-descriptions to sort of get, try to get an accurate picture of who these people were and how accurate the observers were. And they said that the observers were accurately able to judge a lot of personality traits. Yeah, they analyzed 10 different traits. Uh, they wanted to see whether or not the, the study participants could pick up on traits including extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, emotional stability, loneliness, religiosity, and political orientation. And get this, observers were accurate for nine out of the ten traits when viewing the target in a naturally expressive pose. If you're just standing there stock still with a neutral expression on your face, it can be harder to say, you know, if you're just staring blankly at me, I can't be like, Caroline, you must be a lonely (laughs) Catholic who displays hints of neuroticism. No, you can't just, you know, that that's harder to pick up on. But if you are in some sort of expressive pose, we tend to form those, the amygdala and the posterior cingulate cortex kick into gear and start making those subjective value judgments. Um, and things like extroversion, we've mentioned this before, extroversion is easy for us to pick up on because people smile more, you stand in more energetic and less tense ways, you look healthier, neater. 
yeah, nicer and stylish. Yeah. Yeah. But um, people who were judged to be more open to experience were less likely to have that healthy, neat appearance, but more likely to have a distinctive style of dress. I don't know if this means that they're like on the cutting edge of fashion or if they showed up in a clown suit. Well, it sounds to me like uh, they might be zanier. Zany is the word that comes to mind. You're zanier. open to experience. You know, you're, you're, you don't have to stay within the mold. Right. And talking about uh, gender divisions, as far as appearance goes, males with a neat and healthy appearance were judged to be more conscientious. But according to this study, we women are a little harder to crack. Apparently, defining personality in women was more difficult because we are apparently more strongly influenced by cultural demands to look presentable. In other words, we are so lovely, (laughs) it is hard to detect the negativity among us. Right. And those detection skills likely go back a long, long time. It's not that we are just horrible, judgmental people. (laughs) Um, This is actually a useful trait that we evolved so that we could quickly assess whether or not someone was a threat to us. Yeah, and it does depend what we're judging. Um, This is Paul Ekman, a psych professor at UC Medical School in San Francisco. He said, you know, and this is kind of common sense, I think, it's it's easier for us to pick up on emotion than it is to tell right away if someone's really smart. Like you said, you know, judging from those those neutral poses, you know, you can't tell what someone's religion is just by looking at them. Um, but there are a lot of things that can alter our perception of people. If we are angry, so, so like we have this lens that we see the world through, and if we're angry, it actually incites prejudiced responses toward outsiders. So that could be dangerous if you go out of your house in a really bad mood and someone maybe cuts you off in traffic. You're just going to assume this person is terrible. Um, but there's, there's also people on the flip side with, with baby faces. Uh, those people with a round face, big eyes, and a small nose, they tend to give the impression of trustworthiness and naivete. And they cited the example of um, actors like Leonardo DiCaprio, who end up trying to take like tougher roles and grow goatees to make themselves look tough and combat this perception. But another thing that colors our perception is beauty. And this should come as no surprise. We tend to think that a person who is beautiful is healthier and just plain better than maybe we are or than the general population. Yeah, especially if we perceive them to be more attractive than we are, Mm -hmm. then we immediately elevate them to be just fantastic people, leaps and bounds beyond where we are. Yeah. And something else that colors it, this is Leslie Zebrowitz from Brandeis University. And she said that the people who have the best judgments about strangers make, you know, when they have a first impression of someone are people who actually get out among people and develop relationships. They make more accurate snap judgments. So those are probably, though, the extroverts that we're talking about. Mm hmm. Extroverts, you are really looking good in this podcast. Mm -hmm. And extroversion, introversion, notwithstanding, uh, Randy Colvin at Northeastern University, who is a psychology professor there, points out that, I thought this was great, mentally healthy individuals are the easiest to judge. So it's hard to spot crazy. (laughs) This is what I'm learning from this podcast. Yeah, it's, it, it is hard to make that judgment, I guess. But, I mean, how do you know if someone's faking? But anyway, well, Colvin said that healthy individuals' exterior behavior mimics their internal views of themselves. And so what you see is what you get. 
But going back to Paul Ekman, he said that we have a really hard time picking up on fake emotion right off the bat. And I mean, obviously, if you spend any degree of time with someone, you can probably tell if they're full of it, you know. But it's that initial snap judgment where you're, if you're all smiley and bubbly, you think, oh, my gosh, that person's so happy and outgoing. And we have to remember, too, that when we're talking about first impressions, we're talking about a window of seconds, if not milliseconds. Right. Um, and then there's also the issue of how much alike we perceive someone to be. If we feel some kind of immediate kinship or affiliation with a person, of course, that's going to make them look even better in our eyes because we are making those those economic reward value judgments. And this corresponds to a 1988 study in social cognition where subjects were asked to form impressions of a target person who was similar or dissimilar to them in terms of attitudes and activity preferences. And it turns out that if someone has activity interests in common with you, that affects your liking judgments and your it influences your inferences of socially desirable traits. So you want to hang out with somebody who has similar activity interests. If their attitude is similar, that affects your respect judgments and influences your inferences of intellectually desirable traits. So if someone shares your attitude about politics or hot dogs or whatever, you're going to think they're a pretty smart cookie. If they like to do the same things that you do, you're going to want to hang out with them, which makes sense. It's like talking about my interests are talking politics while eating hot dogs. Yeah, and if if I pick up on that right away, I'm going to want to get to know you better. Yeah, let's eat hot dogs together. Yeah, talk about the presidential race. (laughs) But if you are concerned at all about how accurate your first impressions are, then there is a way that you can improve upon them. And this is all very much common sense to me. Uh, This is based on a 2009 study also published in the journal of psychological science. And essentially, the researchers found that if you go out of your way to make a more accurate first impression, to judge people more accurately, you're going to do that. The only downside of that is it might not mean that you will like what you find. You are less likely to come out with a positive um, first impression than you would otherwise be. Yeah, if your radar is up, you're trying to pick up on everything. Whereas if you're just bumping into someone in line at the grocery store, you might think, oh, that person's a jerk, or oh, this person seems really friendly. Whereas if you've been told, like, okay, you have to pick up on, you know, everything about this person as soon as you meet them, you're probably going to be more attuned to the intricacies of their personality. And those are the kind of situations that would probably come up in something like a job interview, or if you, you know, if you're going to an event of some sort where you need to make a first impression or you need to have your, you know, first impression uh, gauges on more accurately than just walking down the street. Yeah. And something else that happens in a job interview, segue, is handshaking. Mm -hmm. And a 2000 University of Alabama study that a firm handshake was related positively to extroversion and emotional expressiveness, but negatively to shyness and neuroticism. There's that thing again. Um, It was also positively related to openness to experience, but only for women. Yeah, the researchers suggest that uh, since we expect for men to have a firm handshake, and because handshaking, going back into history, has existed as this form of agreement and camaraderie, specifically between men. I will not kill you. Right. 
the war is over handshake. <laughs> um, then for women now, we it, it, a firm handshake from us will sort of open open us up in men's eyes. Right. And the researchers in the study found that, you know, so openness to experience, firm handshake, women. Well, more open women are perceived more favorably by the uh, the the handshake researchers in the study, the judges of handshakes. But men with a less firm handshake were seen as more open and were judged less favorably. So men with soft handshakes seem more, let's just say it, they seem more feminine. That could be it. Thereby are judged less favorably. I'm just going to say on a side note, I... I pay attention to my handshake. I think mm-hmm. I got a pretty good handshake. I think I have a good one, too, just because I was also raised by a woman who was like, ew, that man just gave me a limp handshake. So <laughs> let's, let's shake hands right now. Okay. Let's see. It's pretty good. Thanks. You can I tighten w- your grip. Oh, wait, you know what? I was trying to reach around a microphone. Also, I, um, well, I did use my, I'm left-handed, but I oh, immediately reached out my right hand. That's right. Yeah. My, Living in a right-handed world. Um, current event side note. When I, I mean, it wasn't at the time, but it is pertinent now. My mother was one of our chaperones on my eighth grade Washington D.C. trip, and Newt Gingrich met my entire class and was shaking everybody everybody's hands. And she, my mother, leans down to me and is like, "He has a limp handshake." She didn't like him after that. She's like, "Lost my vote." Yeah, <laughs> if she voted, I don't know. So something as innocuous as a politician. Giving a quick handshake to your mother mm-hmm. could have the ramification of her, you know, creating all of these value judgments around how he would effectively or ineffectively govern. Mm-hmm. All right. You could say that that could be an example of a horns effect of a first impression. Exactly. Yeah. There's this halo effect versus horns effect thing that comes up in the book, First Impressions, What You Don't Know About How Others See You by Anne Demeray and Valerie White. And this is coming. Good Morning America ran an excerpt of this book on their website. And apparently when you meet someone and you get a good first impression right off the bat, they give you a good handshake or they're open or extroverted. It has a ripple effect and you make immediate judgments about how they are in other areas. So if they are, if you judge them to be awesome right off the bat, then you also probably are assuming that they're nice, you know, generous, kind, extroverted. If you get a bad impression, like my mother did of Newt Gingrich back in 1998, um, she all of a sudden had this horrible opinion of him that he must be weak. And, you know, kind of just she thought he was icky is what she said. Yeah. Laziness is a trait that comes up a lot in evaluating first impressions, uh, positive and negative traits. Yeah. And like we talked about earlier, it tends to color how you see that person from then on out. And it takes a long time to overcome a bad first impression, whereas people forgive you easily if, the, if you've made a good first impression. And then the next day you're kind of cold and self-absorbed and kind of a jerk. People forgive you because they think, well, this isn't in line with their characteristics. You know, they're, they're probably a good person having a bad day. This reminds me of a fatal mistake that I made my first year of high school. Uh-huh. See, I was homeschooled in middle school. So the first day of high school was a really big idea, a really, a really big deal, I should say to me. <laughs> Still working things out in my head about it. (laughs) And it was such a big deal that, of course, I bought, you know, a new outfit for my first day of school. But I decided that I should save this killer outfit, not for the first day, but for the second day of school. 
you know, I could just like blend in like the first day because everybody's going to be, <laughs> I really thought this through because uh-huh. I was like, you know, there's going to be so much going on. Why not save the killer outfit for the second day of school? When everybody else is slacked off? Yeah. It was, it totally backfired. Oh no. I wore just an unfortunate combination of clothing <laughs> on the first day of school. <laughs> and by the second day, I could tell that all of the popular girls had already judged me as this bad dresser with a bowl cut. The bowl cut I couldn't change. Bowl cut. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and I, I don't think that I, I don't think I recovered. But that's, uh, that's another podcast. Well, you are, you know, you mentioned the popular girls making a decision about you, and people do evaluate how you make them feel. So maybe by dressing weird and having a bowl cut, you made them feel uncomfortable. And so they, therefore, did not want to hang out with you after that, because they were like, that girl makes me feel weird. I'm glad no one told me that when I was 15, <laughs> Caroline. I know, I'm just crushing crushing your self-esteem. It's okay. In retrospect. It, but, it has rebounded since. But this is from that First Impressions book, and people tend to seek out others who provide them with the feelings and benefits that they desire. So if you are open and make someone feel warm and welcome, then they're going to want to hang out with you. I thought I was being friendly. <laughs> Well, their their first impression obviously was not warm and welcoming to you, right? Um, who needed them anyway? <laughs> exactly. Who needs friends? <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the more you the more you listen and connect with someone that you've just met, the more likely it is that other people will return that same attention. And one one big question that we haven't really addressed about first impressions is whether or not women or men are more accurate with those initial judgments. I think there is a stereotype that women are judgier, mm-hmm. if you will, to use a phrase that some people hate. Uh, there's that stereotype. And also the idea that because women tend to have higher interpersonal sensitivity, that we must form more accurate um, first impressions. Um, but according to a 2010 study from the University of British Columbia, published in the Journal of Research in Personality, while our general first impression evaluations tend to be more accurate, we can pick out those large personality traits a little bit better than men might be able to. But when it comes to more specifics about who people are, really no gender difference. So I think it goes back to the motivation of mm-hmm. do we want to form an accurate judgment of someone? Right. What are we looking for? Mm-hmm. Are we just judging someone solely based on whether or not they do have a bowl cut <laughs> or whether or not that person with a bowl cut is a nice girl? I'm sure she is. Still. Still. Uh, so I think that, I think that about covers it. Yeah. I, I, you know, you, you have a very small window in which to make everyone like you. Which is why we need to change our Facebook profile picture pronto. <laughs> People might think we're ridiculous. If anyone, if anyone has suggestions for, I don't know, some kind of really cool pose that we could do. Yeah. That could <laughs> just skyrocket us. I just as a warning, I have very poor balance. So it can't be anything that involves like standing on one leg. Or so I can't like boost you onto my shoulders. I would immediately style? I would immediately fall over. Okay. All right. Well, back to the drawing boards then. <laughs> 
Well, we have given you so much information about first impressions, a lot of which I feel like is sort of common sense, but I think it's comforting to know that our first impressions do steer us at least in the right direction. Yeah. Unless it's a crazy person or someone who's neurotic, in which case you never can tell. (laughs) No, unless they're carrying around a lot of cats. So so that's all we have for you today. Momstuffatdiscovery.com is where you can send your thoughts and feelings about first impressions. And we have a couple of emails here, the first of which is in response to... A listener email from uh, from a couple of episodes ago. Okay, this is from Jessica. She has some advice. Uh, she says, I'm 34 years old and I'm actively engaged in Muay Thai, which is Thai kickboxing. At first, new guys are generally unwilling to get into the ring with me, but after a few times, they get totally used to it and are absolutely willing to become more regular sparring partners. You can't forget that in a big way, they are breaking very ingrained taboos to never hit girls. It's hard for them and they don't want to feel like jerks. For now, I know it's frustrating, and I agree with the advice to talk to your instructor about it. Sometimes working with someone at a much lower level than you gets annoying because you don't feel like you're getting a workout or progressing. So ask to work with someone of a much higher level than you from time to time, even if they're much bigger. It's great for them to work on their technique, and think about that when you're working with people of a lower level, and you'll feel yourself progressing too and won't get discouraged. Again, just keep it up and wait it out. Remember, you're not going to win any fight by giving up, so this is just more place to put that into practice. Well, I have an email here from Carrie Ann, and this is in response to our episode on whether or not gay households are more egalitarian when it comes to things like splitting up chores and all that business. And she writes, uh, because I'm a proudly bisexual woman who's currently in a long-term relationship with a man and points out that uh, none of the studies that we referenced uh, took into account uh, bisexual couples. And she writes, my experience with my current partner may be interesting to some of your listeners. We've been together for eight years and began living together after only one year. He is the love of my life and soulmate, but that does not change my sexuality. I think my partner found it difficult to work out what our roles were when we moved in together because, and we have discussed this openly and intelligently, he admits he thought that we would just fall into stereotypical operating norms in terms of household chores and cleaning. At the time, he worked more hours than I did, but I earned more. So money or time wasn't always a situation as the one study you discussed posited. I'm happy to take responsibility for outside manly chores like mowing and gardening, but do not enjoy them. So I hire a handyman to take care of it. My partner is a great cook and enjoys creating new dishes and trying new recipes, so he is the kitchen god. I am very grateful, but to help us both enjoy the kitchen more, we installed a dishwasher. Oh, man, that does make a big difference. We have discussed having children and have already decided that as I get huge job satisfaction and he not so much, that he would stay home with a baby and I would go to work as soon as I was physically able after the birth. Our misconceptions about the style of our relationship was a hurdle at first, but made us very good communicators, and our relationship is so strong now because of it. Um, and she, in talking about those studies, I did find one study regarding um, gender roles and the um, whether or not they were more egalitarian with um, transgender couples, but bisexual couples, I didn't find anything. And again, this is something that comes up a lot in the podcast that there is still um, a lot of, there, there's, there are a number of holes in sexuality research that are starting to be filled more to take into account more than just heterosexual, homosexual couples. Um, so, 
Thanks to Carrie from Australia for sending in that insight. And, of course, if you have anything to send our way, you can email us at momstuffatdiscovery.com. You can find us on Facebook and look at our lackluster profile picture. And you can also follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And, of course, you can read what we're up to during the week at our home site, howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.